Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a scientist tells about her research into neurodegeneration. We are investigating interactions between profilin and another protein. What's really interesting about that protein is it's also sort of the link between do you have ALS or just neurodegeneration? A psychiatrist discusses mental health's possible relationship to violence, including mass shootings. When serious mental illness is adequately treated, um, there is little, if any, increased risk of violence. And a pharmacology researcher explains his investigation into long QT syndrome and other electrical disturbances of the heart and brain. Yeah, the same mutation that was messing up electrical function in the brain was also messing up electrical function in the heart. All that, plus a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll explore mass shootings and mental health. Then we'll learn about electrical disturbances in the brain and the heart. But first, a look at some research that applies to neurodegenerative diseases. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. In this segment, we'll be taking a look at some basic scientific research into neurodegeneration. I'm talking with Dr. Jessica Hinty Radella. She's an assistant professor of cell and developmental biology and of biochemistry and molecular biology at Upstate. Thank you, Dr. Radella. Hi, thank you. When we talk about neurodegeneration, I want to have you help with a definition. Are we talking about the natural aging process or something else? So it can be the natural aging process. There's aspects of neurodegeneration that occur in aging, but generally speaking, neurodegeneration is sort of an ongoing process where um, you lose the function of your neurons, which are your brain cells or cells that like kind of directly interface with your brain. Um, and, like, when we think of neurodegeneration, probably, like, the diseases that come to the front of our mind are, like, Alzheimer's or Parkinson's disease. Um, but there have been many others recently, like ALS, that have started to, like, get more attention. So, it's so AL a lot of ALS, excuse me, is, the, is Lou Gehrig's disease? Yeah. So okay. ALS stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. Um, that's the really sciencey name for it, but um, conventionally, it's also been referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease because he was one of the um, kind of famous people to have it, and it was when they first started to, like, characterize the disease, so it's sort of associated with his name. Okay. Do the cells that are degenerating in ALS, do they look like the cells that degenerate naturally? Um, so... So the cells that degenerate, there's a specific set of cells that degenerate in ALS, and those are called motor neurons. So these are the, the cells that directly interface between your brain and the muscles in your body. So if you think of Lou Gehrig and, and people that you might have seen, um, like Pete Frades, who is the person behind um, the Ice Bucket Challenge, a lot of times these, these people are, um, they end up like wheelchair bound. And, and ultimately, the patients um, end up dying because their muscles atrophy so much because they're not getting the signals from their brain um, that their body basically shuts down. Um, so is that what your lab is focused on? So we're not looking directly at patients right now, but we're looking at what happens in, in basic neuronal-like cells um, during this process. So there's so many things that your cell does. And in ALS and neurodegeneration in general, um, we don't know the timing of any of these things, like the way that your proteins get made becomes different in these diseases or it stops working. Sometimes you have 
proteins that you don't need anymore. So your cell actually has like a recycling mechanism. And sometimes that goes haywire. Um, sometimes like even making um, DNA and RNA to express proteins and genes that your cell needs to do different processes. Um, sometimes that goes wild. And we don't really understand like what comes first. We just know right now that many of the things a cell does are all involved. Can you talk to me about how proteins and cells work together? You mentioned protein, and I'm used to thinking about protein as a, a meat or egg or something that you eat that's got protein in it. But yeah. that's not what you're talking about, right? It's a different right. kind? Right. So a protein is a basic molecule that exists in your cells, and they do all kinds of different things. So the proteins that we study um, actually have some pretty cool properties. So first of all, there's a couple set of proteins that, that we're really interested in. Um, they're called um, cytoskeletal proteins, and that sounds a little bit crazy, but they're called that because um, they actually make something that's analogous to the skeleton in your body. They do that for the cell. So those proteins are called um, actin and microtubule. So act, and when actin you, and yep. microtubulin, the, they help give the cell its structure? Right. So actin and microtubules give the cell structure. They have these, like, they adopt this, like, filamentous form. Um, and microtubules are, like, bigger. And they sort of, if you, if you wanted to think of this in food terms, because everyone, like, I feel like, likes to eat, right? Mm -hmm. um, microtubules are like bucatini pasta. They're actually like hollow tubes in your cell. And actin is sort of like cooked spaghetti. It's smaller and it's floppier. And even though it's like floppier, these two things like work together to, to build like the cell, basically. They're like the structural support of the cell. Like if you were an architecture, you know, student, it would be like the beam. Um, if you wanted to think of it in the context of, you know, just in a cell, the cytoskeleton, if you have a nerve cell, the cytoskeleton um, is basically its road. So, like, the microtubules are, like, the major highways, and the actin would be the smaller side streets that you take to get to your house. So and they're, actually, they're both the, very important for the structure. They're both very important, and they both rely on each other to get stuff done and, and it's structural but it's also other things so it's easy to think of them as like a skeleton as their name sort of implies but they're also really dynamic molecules um, so so it's sort of like a cytoskeleton that can constantly morph around um, and on top of it if you think of it as like a road you know how with construction you can build new roads, the same sort of stuff happens, right? You can build a new path, you can break it down, you can like, you know, recycle those materials to build a road somewhere else. If you were to zoom out and use Google Maps, right, you could sort of see like the skeleton of your city based on the roads. So it's sort of a similar thing in a cell. And then on top of it, there's lots of proteins um, that move around on these roads in the cell. So this is like a structure just like roads are. And those proteins are exactly like cars. And they bring things from different places like the nucleus out into the cytoplasm and back again. Because I don't know, by the edge of a cell, if you're migrating forward, you might need different building blocks than if you're in your nucleus. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Jessica hinty Radella. She's an assistant professor at Upstate, and we're talking about neurodegeneration. Now, these proteins, I'm assuming um, different proteins have different roles in different neurodegenerative diseases. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so these proteins, actin and microtubules specifically, are involved in everything your cell does. They're the most abundant proteins on Earth. They also interface, like, like hundreds of proteins regulate these proteins on top of their complex regulation on their own, right? And so these proteins are actually the ones that start to get specifically neurodegeneration. And the one that we're really interested in, actually there's two that we're really interested in. One is called profilin which actually is causative in a lot of diseases, but it's one of the most abundant proteins on Earth. 
And that can actually make microtubules grow faster, um, which is sort of like, so it sort of like turns up the knob to like making these structures more dynamic. And it can do that to actin as well and, and maybe facilitate the crosstalk between them. So it's sort of something that's at the interface of both of these rows that can sort of dictate what, what the cell's going to do. Is, let, other, let me interrupt. Is that a sure. positive thing to make the microtubules and the actin grow faster? Do we want them to grow faster necessarily? Well, most of the time we want them to do whatever they normally do. So if they grow faster in some cases, that can actually cause cancer. Um, in the context of neurodegeneration, if there's just generally more microtubules polymerized, that's also not a great thing. Um, but we don't exactly know like how... Like if you fine tune that dynamics and for how long by how that actually like translates to neurodegeneration. This is something that's totally new. In fact, the only like the strongest link we have of prothalin to neurodegeneration is actually with ALS, where specific mutations that are found in families that um, pass these ALS genes on um, have been found in that protein and somehow they um, cause ALS um, more frequently. So they're, they're causative in ALS. Um, and in that case, when you lose your protein, like, like, well, when you have this mutation, the protein loses the ability to regulate microtubules. And because, hmm. and so the microtubules actually slow down. So, it, um, you know, they speed up. If you completely lose this protein, the microtubules can both slow down and speed up. So it's a little bit confusing. But what that really means is it's just very complicated, and cells are very sensitive to the levels of prothalin that, that are around them. So it's actually a tricky problem for scientists, but we have ways to solve it. <laughs> now, and you've got some project in your lab that is directly tied to ALS and neurodegenerative diseases, right? Yes. So we are, we are actually looking at the details of the interaction between prothalin and actin and microtubules um, to see exactly what it's doing to those dynamics. And we can do that in a test tube. So we just purify the protein and use uh, a really fancy form of microscopy to, to actually look and see what happens um, directly to those cytoskeletal filaments. Um, we also are investigating interactions between prothalin and another um, protein, which has over 50 mutations in ALS, and that's called TDP43. So T TDP43, what, can you describe what that is? Yeah, so it doesn't have a particularly interesting name for like what that abbreviation is. It actually stands for TAR-DNA binding protein 43. Um, but what's really interesting about that protein, besides that it has 50 mutations with ALS, is it's also sort of the link between do you have ALS or just neurodegeneration? Like that's a big open question right now. Um, the phenotype that we see in patients, the only way to really diagnose ALS is to rule out everything else first because we can't even, we don't even know what are the specific things that go wrong in ALS versus other forms of neurodegeneration. And TDP43 is a beautiful example of that. So um, if, even without disease, if you're over the age of 80, which, you know, some of us are lucky, lucky to get that far, it turns out that this protein can start to sort of aggregate in your cytoplasm just there normally. So somehow it's part of the aging process. We don't really know how. Normally, this protein lives perfectly happily in your nucleus. And when it goes out into the cytoplasm, that's usually bad news. Um, similar to Alzheimer's disease, there's this um, incredible microtubule binding protein called tau. And that forms aggregates in the cytoplasm in Alzheimer's disease, when, when they're, and that, that's what causes the problem. And if you take those aggregates, and in, in like um, in the lab and, and put them on top of perfectly healthy cells, those cells actually get worse. Hmm. The same thing happens with TDP43. Um, so, so that's sort of interesting, but it happens normally with age. Um, in Alzheimer's disease, you get some of these aggregates forming in the cytoplasm. And in ALS, 
when you have mutations in TDP43, you get tons of aggregates in the cytoplasm. So um, this aggregation phenomenon is sort of, um, it actually happens normally with this protein in the nucleus. It's just when it goes out of the nucleus, it becomes a problem. So we're actually really interested to see, is it using actin and microtubule roads to get out of the nucleus? And does the dynamics of the actin and microtubules change um, when this protein gets out, you know, and is now present in the cytoplasm? Is that what makes you really sick? And then on top of it, TDP43 and profilin are like best friends. They directly interact. And it seems that Propylene doesn't really form aggregates on its own, but when it's there with PDP43, it, it makes even more aggregation, like way more of it. And we've seen that in the test tube, and we've also seen it in cells. So could there potentially be a way to turn this TDP thing into a, a way to treat some of these neurodegenerative diseases? Right. So, like, that would be the goal, right? Um, either use TDP43 or possibly profilin as a target for, um, for a therapeutic would be a really good idea. TDP43 is a pretty big protein. It might be a little bit challenging because it's involved in a lot of things that the cell does. But I even think if we could somehow target the interaction between TDP43 and this profilin thing that's basically like a rheostat, right, or like the thermostat in your house, it's like turning things up or turning it down. With other proteins that, that form aggregates, for some, some reason, this protein is like a convergence point. And sometimes it, it makes bigger aggregates, but fewer of them. We don't even know if bigger aggregates is worse than like more smaller aggregates, right? So like even knowing that would be of interest to this field, right? Well, I appreciate you sharing your research with us. Thank you so much to Dr. Jessica Hinty Radella. She's an assistant professor of cell and developmental biology and of biochemistry and molecular biology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. The connection between mental health and violence, next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Is there a link between mental illness and violence? I'm talking today with Dr. Ronald Pies, a professor emeritus of psychiatry at Upstate and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston. He's researched this subject and has a paper in the journal Psychiatric Times called Moving Beyond Motives in Mass Shootings. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Pies. Thank you very much, Amber. So do I understand correctly that there's no good evidence linking mental illness and violence? So, Amber, the short answer is there is only a weak and qualified link between mental illness and violence. Uh, my uh, upstate colleague, uh, Dr. James Knoll, and uh, his colleague, Dr. George Annis, uh, estimate that the overall contribution of people with serious mental illness to violent crimes is only about 3%, a very small uh, percentage. And when you examine these crimes in detail, an even smaller percentage of them are found to involve uh, firearms. Uh, that said, uh, as um, Dr. Fuller Torrey has shown, there is a link between untreated mental illness and violence. Uh, particularly when there is substance abuse involved. So uh, the key really is that when serious mental illness is adequately treated, um, there is little, if any, increased risk of violence. Interesting. Well, what about um, victims of violence? Are people with mental illness more likely to be victimized? Probably so. Uh, it's hard to get good data on this because we're heavily dependent on self-reporting. Um, so people are asked, have you had any uh, uh, instances in which you were the victim of violence in the last month, things of that sort. Uh, so you're dependent on self-reports. But most of the evidence suggests that uh, folks with psychiatric illness 
are much more likely to be victims of violence than uh, perpetrators of violence. Now, in terms of gun violence, do we know how many deaths by guns are murders versus how many are suicide? Well, actually, uh, most uh, uh, gun deaths in in this country uh, are, in fact, uh, suicides, um, which a lot of people don't realize. They think about uh, gun shootings and they think about homicides, but uh, something like uh, six in 10 uh, gun deaths in this country, uh, really an enormous percentage are uh, suicides. Um, And... I know that we're going to be talking about mass shootings. Um, Maybe I can just put that in perspective a bit, if that's okay. Yeah. How often is mental illness a factor in mass shootings? Well, first of all, let me just say that there's no consensus on the definition of mass shootings. So that's one problem in answering questions. But if we define mass shootings as incidents in which uh, four or more people are killed, Uh, The FBI estimates that fewer than 1% of gun murders in this country occur in mass shootings. Uh, As I mentioned, most gun-related deaths in this country are actually suicides, uh, about 6 in uh, 10. Now, as far as mental illness and mass shootings, um, Dr. Noel and George Annis to whom I'm I'm quite appreciative for their their teaching on these issues. Uh, They estimate that mass shootings by people with serious mental illness uh, represent less than 1% of all yearly gun-related homicides. And furthermore, a, a recent FBI study found that only about 25% of mass shooters ever received a diagnosis of mental illness. And only three of those uh, individuals had a diagnosis of a psychotic disorder. So this uh, popular idea of the crazed mass shooter or the psychotic killer, these are really, uh, for the most part, these are really myths. So when we think about mass shooters, and unfortunately there have been several in recent years in America, uh, are they generally premeditated? Do people plan out what they're going to do and, and go do it? Or do they just snap and react? Right. Good question, Amber. Uh, most mass shootings do involve advanced planning. And sometimes uh, it's very detailed and extensive planning. Um, You may recall the recent mass shooting in Nova Scotia, Canada. I think that was in April, um, where the shooter had actually created this fake um, RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police car. Um, People thought, oh, he's uh, or he was uh, claiming that this was a tribute to the uh, police. Well, it turned out it was part of this really bizarre, elaborate plot he had uh, to engage in a mass shooting. So no, uh, people don't just snap and commit mass murder. Uh, Also, many mass murderers uh, intentionally plan not to survive their own attacks and intend to commit suicide or uh, to be killed by the police after committing their crime. So the the basic answer is no, people don't just snap. Generally, the mass shooters do quite a bit of planning. So are they doing this because they want attention or they want to be remembered as having committed this horrible act of violence or what, what is the motivation? Well, the motives probably differ from shooter to shooter, and, and Dr. Noel and I have argued that uh, the media sometimes spend an excessive amount of time trying to figure out uh, the person's motive, which often doesn't get us very far. Uh, one thing we can say is it, it's not just killing for killing's sake. Um, many, if not most, uh, mass shooters as you implied, are seeking attention of some sort. I would call it notoriety. 
um, or even infamy. Uh, and unfortunately, in the age of the internet and social media, many mass shooters do wind up with a tremendous amount of publicity. And I think that that's exactly what they're looking for. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with psychiatrist Dr. Ronald Pies. Is there a profile for mass shooters? Well, there's no one size fits all profile of who carries these out, uh, Amber, but there is a very general profile for most mass shooters. Unfortunately, it's so broad that it isn't really useful predictively. Just in terms of demographics, uh, the overwhelming majority of mass shooters, about 95% are male. And that's a long, long story that we probably won't have time to go into. Uh, But it's very unusual to find a female mass shooter. Uh, I actually saw one study looking at um, 113 mass shootings in this country between 1982 and uh, 2020. Only three of those were carried out uh, by women. Now, in terms of psychological profile, um, we really don't have good clinical data since, uh, as you might expect, very few of these mass shooters have been evaluated by mental health uh, professionals. But the evidence that we do have suggests that uh, many shooters fit a profile that uh, I call the three R's, uh, rage, resentment, and revenge. Um, And in addition, uh, mass killers tend to share a number of uh, psychological and behavioral characteristics, uh, some degree of depression, uh, resentment, which I mentioned, social isolation. They tend to externalize blame. In other words, everything is everyone else's fault. Uh, They often have a fascination with uh, violent entertainment uh, videos and the like. And often they have a very keen interest in weapons and weaponry, uh, a really kind of a fixation or obsession with uh, firearms. So that's a very general profile. And as you can see, that would probably identify thousands and thousands of people who, who do not become mass shooters. Right, exactly. Are, well, are there risk factors that we can be on the lookout for then that would raise the risk of violence in general? Yes, uh, there are risk factors for violence in general. Um, And the most important risk factor uh, for future violence is uh, a history of previous violence. Uh, That's probably the strongest predictor. If you've done it in the past, um, you're at a high risk for doing it again. In addition, we know that um, there are several risk factors involved in Uh, violence or violent crime in general. So we're not necessarily here talking about mass shootings. Uh, We could be talking about an assault, for example. Uh, So alcohol and drug use increase the risk of violent crime by as much as sevenfold. And this is even true among people who do not have a uh, history of mental illness. Binge drinking raises the risk for serious violence. Uh, Other risk factors include a history of having been abused or bullied, uh, witnessing violence between parents, which is interesting, as sort of modeling that behavior. Uh, I mentioned a preoccupation with weapons or death, uh, people who have in general poor control of their anger, and people who are socially isolated. All of those are risk factors for serious violence in general. What about, are there red flags that would predict imminent directed violence? How, if you know someone with some of these risk factors, is there something that would signal to you that, you know, they're about to do something? Uh, Yes, uh, there are. Um, You know, this this goes against the idea that people just snap. Um, Actually, perpetrators of mass shootings often display some warning signs before their violence such as engaging in recent acts or threats of violence, or uh, violating a protection order, for example. Uh, Another warning sign is what's called leakage of intent. This is when a future shooter intentionally or unintentionally uh, starts spilling the beans, starts revealing clues to a third party. Like, hmm, you know, I've been having these thoughts about uh, going after that school. Uh, And surprisingly, people will actually share these ideas uh, with other people. Um, So those uh, warning 
warning signs uh, may present opportunities for interventions that, that could actually uh, save lives. And, and some data show that actually in more than half of mass shootings, a shooter exhibited at least one uh, dangerous warning sign uh, prior to the shooting. Wow. Well, what's the difference between someone who was bullied at school, who has a substance abuse history, and who's romantically rejected but doesn't kill people, and someone who does? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Amber. I don't know that we have a clear answer to that. Uh, clearly, only a small fraction of people who meet the profile that you just outlined wind up killing or shooting people. There are probably dozens of factors that shape the trajectory for uh, any given person. Uh, the the FBI's study of active shooters, which is a little different than mass shooters, but it's, it's similar, uh, they found that the presence of a grievance is an important factor. Uh, and it, uh, the FBI report actually identified various grievances in, in about 79% of the active shooters, uh, usually in the realm of interpersonal or employment action. So somebody um, got fired recently, they have a grudge against their employer, um, that may uh, set them up uh, in addition to some of the other personality factors that we talked about earlier, rage, resentment, social isolation, tendency to externalize blame, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those uh, probably affect the trajectory for a, a certain percentage of the people who, who fit the profile that you just gave. Do you see mass shooter copycats? Or do they try to outdo one another? Uh, I think there's pretty good evidence that they do. Um, there's a lot of evidence that some mass shooters have made very careful studies of their predecessors uh, in a kind of admiring way, almost like uh, a cult figure uh, might be admired. And um, some of the mass shooters really seem to want to outdo one another, kind of be the biggest name in the history books, which is a real problem because they get so much publicity. With the stress and pressure everyone seems to be under related to the pandemic, are these conditions that will potentially fuel would-be mass shooters? Yeah, I don't think we know whether mass shootings per se are likely to increase as a reaction to the pandemic, uh, Amber, but uh, the Brady Center uh, is reporting that gun sales are surging across the country, uh, apparently in response to fears related to the coronavirus. Um, so uh, given that people are in uh, isolation, quarantine, uh, and uh, given that marital stress and family stress is increasing at this time, I think that is actually kind of a worrying uh, finding. Well, thank you so much to Dr. Ronald Pies. He's a professor emeritus of psychiatry at Upstate and a clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, electrical disturbances in the brain and the heart. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today, I'm talking with a scientist who investigates electrical disturbances in the brain and heart. Dr. David Auerbach is an assistant professor of pharmacology at Upstate. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Auerbach. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join us. So you were a graduate pharmacology student at Upstate from 2004 to 2011. And then you worked at the University of Michigan Medical School and the University of Rochester Medical Center before you joined the staff at Upstate last year. When did you start studying electrical disturbances in the brain and heart? Yes. Um, basically, my interest and in training began, as you mentioned, during graduate school at Upstate here. I had the fortunate opportunity to work for one of the real pioneers in the field of cardiac arrhythmia. Uh, research the electrical disturbances in the heart here that we were trying to understand the uh, causes for them. And that was with um, Jose Halife 
and uh, he had a large team of um, investigators with many different areas of expertise. And then during that period, uh, we moved to the University of Michigan where I finished up my graduate training but stayed an upstate student uh, and then ultimately moved on to a new laboratory, a laboratory of Lori Isom for my postdoctoral fellowship. And that's where I really initiated uh, some of my particular area of you know, interest in looking outside of what I call the classic organ of interest. Uh, we were studying a model of epilepsy, you know, patients with severe forms of seizures, you know, these which are due to similar to the heart, but electrical disturbances in the brain there. And in this model, someone was studying the brain, and uh, I studied the heart, and we were able to show that you know, the same mutation that was messing up electrical function in the brain was also messing up electrical function in the heart. This really helped uh, advance the field and people's understanding that you need to look outside the classic organ of interest, and um, this could be one of the causes for the high rate of, unfortunately, sudden death in certain forms of epilepsy. When you say classic organ of interest, is that the brain you're talking about? Sure, so uh, in uh, certain diseases, you know, everyone has always kind of studied um, you know, where the, it was first demonstrated. For example, uh, during my postdoctoral fellowship, this was a severe form of epilepsy, so everyone was studying the brain there, and uh, I, you know, looked outside this classic organ, the brain, and looked thus, you know, in the heart. Uh, but then during my time at the University of Rochester, I studied a classically studied cardiac disease called long QT syndrome. Uh, and, um, using a clinical database, actually, was able to demonstrate that not only were these patients with long QT syndrome developing electrical disturbances in their heart in the form of arrhythmias, which has been well-established, we also found that they were also developing electrical disturbances in their brain in the form of seizures. Well, I want to ask you a lot more about that. Um, long QT syndrome, though, uh, I, I want to have you explain that. And from what I understand, um, the QT refers to some tracings on an EKG. It has something to do with the electrical activity of the heart, right? Exactly. So the the QT interval is the time from electrical activation in the lower part of your heart, the ventricles, to the uh, recovery, uh, you know, of electrical activity. And so importantly, it's a piece the electrical of, a activity. Little segment of the heartbeat, then. Exactly. It's the time from electrical activation to electrical recovery, you know, in the heart there. And importantly, that electrical activity is what triggers the heart to contract. So unless we have the coordinated electrical activation and recovery in the whole heart, um, you know, we will not have adequate pumping of blood uh, in the heart, you know, is, due to these arrhythmias. Is this a, a, a problem that people are born with? I mean, would a, would a baby, would you find out that you have this as a baby? Sure. So um, a little bit of the history behind it here. Initially... Um, people were diagnosing it purely upon the EKG. They would see that, as the name implies, QT prolongation on the EKG. Uh, uh, but then uh, in the mid-'90s and into the early 2000s, you know, when a lot of genetic uh, work um, you know, took off, we then began being able to map some of these um, diseases that were uh, diagnosed by the EKG now based upon genetic testing. Uh, so long QT syndrome is due to mutations uh, in um, genes that encode um, ion channels or uh, proteins that interact with the ion channel. These ion channels sit on the membrane there and, uh, as the name implies, pass ions back and forth, and that's what triggers or sustains the electrical activity in the heart there. Is so there... One QT syndrome, can, sorry, can be due to uh, genetic, uh, can be diagnosed via genetic means or through the EKG. Are there signs or symptoms? Would a, how would a person 
feel if this was happening to them, if they had a long QT syndrome? Sure. Um, you likely would not feel any symptoms due to the QT prolongation, yet um, if an unfortunate uh, case arose where you developed a, an arrhythmia, you know, that can you know, lead to loss of consciousness, um, you know, a, ra a feeling of a racing of your heart, or in the most horrible cases, and sometimes is the first demonstration, you know, is sudden death. Um, you know, wow. the, you know, cardiac arrhythmia is a leading cause of sudden death. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. David Auerbach about his research into electrical disturbances of the heart and brain. Now, you've described what this does to the heart. Are people with long QT syndrome, are they at greater risk for seizures? Sure. So um, while I was at the University of Rochester, I um, looked at this. Um, but my training was always, you know, in at the basic science level in animals or cellular models here, um, and I wanted to extend my research program uh, to take it to the patient level and use uh, patient results to help fuel um, my results that I could then bring back to the bench there. And University of Rochester has a really neat. Um, database available. It's called the Long QT Registry, and it includes over 22,000 people. And we have really detailed um, information about these patients. And uh, in that database, we showed that uh, patients who had genetic mutations that are associated with or cause Long QT syndrome also were at an increased risk of developing electrical disturbances in the brain in the form of seizures. So yes, patients with long QT syndrome, um, our results suggest that they are at an increased risk of seizures as well. Yet um, this is something that's uh, been more anecdotal in the field, and we were the first to really take at a large database type level. Uh, but there's a lot of work still to be done to really confirm that, and that's what my research program is exploring at Upstate. So the electrical activity you talk about in the heart and the brain, in this situation, is it the same electrical activity? Is it connected? Sure. So uh, there is a uh, electrical connection between the brain and the heart in the autonomic nervous system. So that's one area that we're exploring. Also, another uh, hypothesis that we're testing right now is is that same mutant channel that's expressed in the heart that's messing up electrical function in the heart also present in the brain and messing up electrical function there. Can you tell me about the long QT syndrome model that you created? Can it be used to predict which patients are most at risk for sudden death from heart problems or, or seizures? Sure. So we have an animal model that... Uh, Unlike a smaller mouse or rat models, we have a larger animal model here uh, that uh, mimics the same cardiac electrical activity that's seen in people. Uh, and what we did is we went into the precise genetic code of this animal here and tweaked it just like, or mutated, just like as seen in people here. And using this uh, model, we're able to um, get recordings from these animals, just like, you know, if a patient came into, you know, where you can get EEG, which are electrical activity, electrical activity recordings in the brain, as well as EKG recordings, electrical activity recordings in the heart there, and we can study the effects that this uh, mutation that's seen in people uh, has upon electrical activity in the heart and the brain. Also, we're able to test various uh, drugs. Uh, uh, that may be uh, helpful, you know, in these people to help prevent these arrhythmias or seizures. Uh, and ultimately, it, it helps uh, examine uh, the true effects that this mutation has and whether this mutation can directly or indirectly cause arrhythmias or seizures. 
So that's something you're still working on. I mean, you're going to, it sounds like, devote your career to this. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I uh, fortunately secured uh, grant funding early in my career to generate this annual model that I foresee being such a valuable tool, um, not only for my research program, but to advance the field as well. As you know, in the field right now, there is still a fair amount of controversy of whether patients with long QT syndrome are in fact developing seizures because you know, an arrhythmia and a seizure both can lead to a loss of consciousness. Uh, so there's, you know, still some questions here, but with this model, we're able to really examine the underlying causes or mechanisms for this to really nail it down. Well, it sounds like if you, if you figure out the underlying cause, maybe there'll be a way to come up with a treatment that kind of tackles exactly. both, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we really want to, you know, advance our ability to diagnose it, you know, to, you know, whether to suggest that, you know, cardiologists and neurologists need to be sitting around the same table uh, in discussing and managing these patients, as well as, you know, developing new therapeutics, you know, whether it be devices or medications to help prevent these events. Can you tell us about the project you have underway that involves wearable technology to detect cardiac arrhythmia markers in patients with epilepsy? Sure. Um, you know, everyone's very interested in wearable technology right now. You know, it's, it enables you uh, to get continuous recording. And that's what is of the most uh, interest and value to me is that, for example, if you go into you know, your cardiologist or your family practice physician and they do you know, an EKG recording from you, but that's under a resting condition. You're sitting in the exam room. They get the recording from you. It's about 10 seconds long. Uh, but with wearable technology, we're able to get continuous, theoretically 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year recording from you. Uh, and uh, our wearable technology what we're looking at is not only to get uh, recordings of like your heart rate, which you might get from your wearable, but to get the actual EKG recording, as well as your respiration, your activity, your temperature, um, you know, your, um, the amount of oxygen that's in your blood, your oxygen saturation, you know, which may help us to look, you know, take a more multi-system uh, approach to understanding these diseases here on a continuous level here so we can understand are there any potential markers that may predict whether uh, you're at a high risk of developing one of these uh, horrible lethal events here uh, and also uh, what you know what is causing what in terms of you know the timeline between each of these multi-system changes Wow. Well, it's fascinating work. I, I want to thank you so much to Dr. David Auerbach, an assistant professor of pharmacology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. The memories we have of those we have loved give the muse some heartbreakingly beautiful poems. I'd like to read two of them now. The first is by writer and retired teacher and illustrator Mary Beth O'Connor. It is called Afterward. As October days fall into ripen and shar, I lean toward what comes next, the darkening, the frosts, the nights full of nearer stars. I put on your coat, venture out, hearken to the news of changing seasons, hushed but for crunch of bootsteps toward the last squash to gather, then mow dead leaves to mulch, sweep the porch, store cushions, watch the forecast. 
Down by the pond, the red-winged blackbirds have departed. No more chatter and shrill. I'll not see them until the spring return, even though I keep the bird feeders full. I'll bring in firewood, clean the smoke-smudged glass, light the match, watch flames devour what's past. The next is from semi-retired publisher and poet Jack Hopper, who has published four poetry collections. Here is Your Presence. Were it not for you, I'd be sitting here alone. You're gone, and I accept it, as the end at last to so much pain you had to suffer just to die, while others whom I've loved live on or pass into the ether of distance and neglect. Occasionally, we still meet in that variant version of reality we call dreams, and you are quite real until the sun paws kind and quietly at the blind, reminding me there is another world wherein you will not walk. I will not hear your voice, will not lie down beside you, or reach out for what we both desired as you pass by. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we explore a new method of birth control. If you missed any of today's show or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.